Welcome to Sports Business Secrets. I'm your host, Kevin Tarka. This podcast is specifically designed to share secrets from experts in the sports business world to help you along your own path to success in this industry. Each episode is packed with lessons and insights that never expire. You'll hear from general managers of professional teams to CEOs of sports tech companies to agents, coaches, players, and everything in between. I invite you to join me in real time on my personal journey of representing players and coaches, traveling the world, and always finding a way to battle through obstacles in this competitive industry. Zach, welcome to Sports Business Secrets. Thank you. Hello. How are you, Kevin? Good, good. I appreciate you uh, tuning in late your time. Reminder to our audience here, it's never easy to coordinate the USA time with uh, with Asian time. So it's 9 p.m. there um, outside yep. of Tokyo and 7 a.m. here in uh, in USA. But we're here. Yeah, that's the most important Yes, part. Yes, 12 hours, right? It's uh, Or 14 hours, 14 hours rather. So it really is almost literally kind of the opposite side of the globe. Uh, it's always difficult, right? Whenever you're trying to like set up meetings or whether it's Zoom calls or even podcasts, um, you know, it's night or and then it's like, uh, early morning on the other side of the world. So, but you know, I'm glad to be here. Uh, for you, it's seven a.m. So I'd say that's tougher than nine p.m. But yeah, yeah. Well, this this is the life <laughs> we signed up for, and uh, it's going to be worth it for a great conversation to educate some of our uh, our our audience here. So, um, awesome. yeah, Zach Zach and I actually met earlier this year um, as a byproduct mm-hmm. of discussions with uh, with one of my clients, and Demarcus introduced us and. Uh, you know, we had a few chats about Toyo and the rest is history, as they say. But for our audience mm-hmm. who might not be familiar, obviously, Zach's going to introduce himself in a second here. But um, for, for a brief intro, <clears throat> Zach is the mm-hmm. general manager of the Tokushima Gamburus uh, in the Japanese B3 League. Um, it's a first-year team, an expansion team. And he's in his first season uh, as a basketball GM after a lengthy career in many other roles in the sports industry he has a very unique background for gm which is uh why i believe he will continue to be great in this role as a gm um he's done everything from tv production to on-field reporting to stage acting to nfl commentary to <laughs> a professional baseball interpreter um to actually a podcast host himself and and most recently the official correspondent with the the washington wizards there so um yeah, you're going to hear all about it. We're going to try and dive into some of these topics and then hear about uh, Japanese basketball. So official welcome. Well, thank you very much. Konbanwa or konnichiwa. Uh, but it's actually evening here, so it's konbanwa. Uh, you know, thank you for listing my resume there. I appreciate it. Um, actually, you're making me feel really old, uh, which I am. Uh, and so, wise. You know, we say wise. This, yes, yes, wise, but old too. You know, I'm not going to lie about that. So when you live this long, um, you know, you could have I guess that many careers, if you will, um, you know, whether it's broadcast uh, journalism or uh, interpreting or um, stage acting. Uh, and then now, you know, front office uh, executive for a basketball team, which I never would have imagined, you know, uh, of all the positions that I would be filling, um, you know, never, ever would have imagined this kind of turn of events in my career. But, um, you know, I'm super happy to be in this role right now um you know the team as you said uh inaugural season um 12 and 4 so we're off to a good start of course we don't take that for granted uh we're only about a quarter or a little less than a third of the way into the season um you know there's still going to be ups and downs um as demarcus berry head coach demarcus berry always says it's not about the results but it's about the process uh so we do take that seriously 
but I'm just so happy to be part of a program. Um, you know, I was able to help build this program or um, put in a position to help build this program. But, you know, more importantly, I'm just a piece of the puzzle. So I'm just really happy to be here and um, seeing this team grow uh, every weekend. It's awesome. It's, it's been fun to watch. And I know you guys are just uh, just getting started here. So let's mm-hmm. uh, let's start with um, with growing up. I always like to start sure. with growing up with my guests. You know, why don't you explain okay. a little bit about where you're from? You know, what got you into sports in general, what you want to be when you're growing up for, for those who are listening right now and not seeing the video yet. Um, they might say, yep. well, man, his English is perfect, uh, uh, which it is. Mm-hmm. And I know you spend a lot of time in the States. So, yeah, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. growing up and, um, you know, obviously the the Japanese English language situation and then what got what got you into sports. Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm biracial. Right. So my mom's yep. Japanese and my dad's Canadian. Um, and I grew up like in a real bilingual family. Like uh, I remember growing I grew up in Japan. Uh, I moved to Canada when I was 14, uh, but I spent a lot of my summers in Toronto, uh, which is my dad's hometown when I was like, you know, from age five to like nine, like every summer uh, spent at my grandparents uh, in Toronto. And I think like that was more so that my parents would like just, you know, could focus on work or whatever. And then also just have me exposed to like Canadian life as well. Uh, But I went to an international school in Tokyo. So I went through a fully educational um, English educational system, uh, an educational system uh, here uh, geared towards, I guess, preparing kids to uh, eventually, you know, if they were to attend university um, to attend like U.S. or Canadian colleges or colleges abroad. Uh, So but, you know, truly like, you know, I spoke Japanese to my mom and English to my dad and, um, you know, just kind of grew up in that uh, bilingual environment, uh, which kind of helped set me up, I guess, for this current career. Uh, But then I moved to Toronto when I was 14. Um, You know, I went to a U.S. college because I just felt like, um, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up, Um, you know, like as I became like, you know, after maybe graduating uh, college. um, But I did feel like I wanted to use my language skills, you know, put that to put that to use. Right. So I felt like had I stayed in Toronto and, you know, of course, you never know, like, um, you know, how life turns out. Had I stayed in Toronto, like my whole life, it's very possible I still would have been, who knows, like Yusei Kikuchi's interpreter or something like that, right? Um, but still, like, I just wanted to kind of give it a shot in the States. So uh, I ended up going to college in Philly. I went to UPenn um, and then started my kind of broadcast journalism career uh, from that point on. But um, junior year of college, I was um, an intern with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, so at the time I was a PR intern, um, but, uh, that was the season after Cal Ripken broke the, um, uh, consecutive games record, um, you know, Lou Gehrig's record, uh, but actually the world record was held by Sachio Kinugasa, um, a player, uh, who played for the Hiroshima Toyo Carp, uh, Japanese professional baseball team. He held the world record. And so when Cal Ripken, um, broke, uh, Kinugasa-san's record in 1996, when I was interning, um, Kinugasa-san was actually like invited to come to Baltimore um, to meet Cal Ripken and spend, you know, a couple of days with him. So that's when, um, you know, I was kind of went from PR intern to an interpreter and I was helping to interpret mm. for uh, Mr. Kinugasa. And I remember the day that, you know, until then I was like always doing like media game day reports or just copying stuff or delivering stuff to members of media, you know, I'm a, like a runner, but also like helping with media notes. Um, but still like, you know, I'm just kind of like, um, you know, just help, I'm a support guy. Right. 
um, and going into the locker room, like, you know, handing out press releases to members of the media. But one day I walk into the press um, press conference room with uh, Mr. Kinugasa <laughs> and, you know, I see Cal Ripken already seated at the podium. Uh, and then I see two more mics and I'm like, wait, what's going on, Mr. Kinugasa? And then the PR guy's like, oh, that one's for you. I'm like, what? So I was kind of like, you know, already like thrown into the fire, like right off the bat. I had never been an interpreter. I'd never been trained to be an interpreter. But, you know, it was like just part of my upbringing. Right. So honestly, um, and, you know, as a baseball guy, uh, I'd always been a baseball guy. That's it's not basketball for me. It's been a baseball thing for me. Um, so, you know, all the, um, you know, whether the baseball terminology, both in Japanese and English was not an issue. So I felt like I did pretty well in that interpreter role. Um, but yeah, growing up, I actually wanted to be a baseball player. But, you know, I hung up those dreams, like probably in middle school, when I realized, you know what, like, uh, I'm very injury prone. Um, I, I was kind of a regular, um, you know, I played at a pretty decent level, like, um, you know, Canadian baseball, like, um, you know, regional team, uh, even played like club baseball in college, but still not division one, right? Club baseball, uh, which was the equivalent of division three, uh, but at that point, not even starting. So not cutting it. So, okay, like the baseball player dreams are gone. But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, at that point, I knew that I wanted to be either a broadcaster or be involved in, you know, interpreting. So, um, you know, ar around the time of my graduation, I started sending out resumes to major league ball clubs. Um, you know, Hideo Nomo at the time was with the Dodgers. Uh, Hideki Rabu had joined the Yankees. Um, and I actually, um, you know, I haven't talked about this too much, but I was um, almost hired to be Hideki Rabu's interpreter. They already had an interpreter, but the, because of the media buzz in New York, they needed an extra interpreter. So I was about to be that person, except Hideki Rabu really struggled off the get go. Um, and, you know, that kind of was like that plan was gone uh, right away. So um, I ended up um, at Comcast Sportsnet uh, right out of college, which is now um, NBC Sports Philadelphia. So that was my first like real gig out of university. Uh, and then I guess, you know, I mean, the rest, I guess it's history. I don't know, like I've hopped around so much. Uh, but that was kind of my start to broadcast journalism. That's awesome. So, uh, I mean, a couple of things to touch on. Yeah, I'm glad you, you talked about the baseball dream because I always ask, you know, what, what do you would you want to be when you're growing up? And it sounded like obviously like mm -hmm. most kids dreams that are in sports. It's OK, I want to make the NBA or the NFL or the MLB. Um, but obviously right. early on, you kind of had that mindset that, OK, maybe that's not your path, which is great. But the thing that I really yeah. want to double down on for mm -hmm. whoever's listening, I mean, if you're an international audience uh, or if you're uh, an audience from the States, like. Being bilingual, that's one thing that I kick mm -hmm. myself for because, and, and you know, I, mm -hmm. I say I'm, I'm conversational in Spanish and I can get it, mm -hmm. I can get by riding a taxi and ordering some food maybe, but um, Matt, it just opens up so many doors for you. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, quite literally for you being an interpreter, um, but just mm -hmm. the career paths, like, do, do you think that was one of the biggest reasons um, that you got some opportunities. Obviously, you took advantage of the opportunity when you were thrown into the fire, you know, at that one yeah. uh, press release with the microphone. Yeah. But do you yeah. think that's the biggest reason that really allowed you to jump, you know, dive deep into the sports industry in the States? Um, I don't think it was like necessarily the reason why, for example, with that internship, I got the internship. But uh, certainly it's a tiebreaker, right? So sure. if like, you know, everything else on the resume is, let's say, you know, someone, an employer is looking at a resume and saying, okay, they're both equally impressive. 
um, you know, at that point, like what are going to be the difference makers, right? So at least, um, you know, as far as baseball, Major League Baseball at the time, um, you know, they're starting to consider uh, Japanese talent. Um, you know, that was like right around the time that, like I said, Hideo Nomo in 1995 joined the Dodgers. Um, and so they're, you know, I, I think baseball executives or even PR folks, um, you know, front office folks started to feel like, okay, like maybe there will eventually be a need for a Japanese language specialist. So um, even though that was for me, like I was an intern for the whole summer in the PR department, I only acted as an interpreter uh, for those two days. And then meanwhile, whenever other Japanese guests um, came to Camden Yards, then I would help out as interpreter. But, you know, I was more of a PR person. Uh, but I think that was kind of the the tiebreaker. So and then, um, you know, as my career progressed in other areas or with other uh, employers, like at times my language skill was put to use and at other times it wasn't put to use. So, um, you know, I mean, I guess you could look at it uh, from job to job, it differed. But um, even with the acting, actually, you know, um, you talk about like the stage actor part. Um, interestingly, uh, the roles that I landed were um, Japanese themed characters or Japanese themed um, plays. And so, uh, my Japanese language skills were put to use um, for one of the plays that I was in um, most times, you know, I was a professional actor. I still have my like SAG after card and actor's equity card. So I'm actually still a professional actor, like um, in theory right now, I, I still pay the dues, right? So I'm still part of the union, um, but I haven't been on stage or I haven't been on the camera as an actor for like many years now, but um, there was like a five-year period where I, all I did was stage acting. And a lot of the plays that I was part of, and especially one of the big productions that uh, I was, um, I kept get, um, landing was a um, uh, role as a baseball player. Um, and it was a bilingual role, um, a play called Take Me Out, um, you know, by Richard Greenberg. And it was a big hit on Broadway, I think in the early 2000s. And then after that, I wasn't part of the Broadway production, but after that, that play went to regional theaters around the country and but the auditions were held in New York and I would go and audition and you know because I was a baseball player like a real baseball player and I spoke both languages um you know it's kind of instant like directors will like bring in all these um people auditioning and you know they might there might be a great actor but it might not be an actual baseball player you know and we had to do a lot of shadow pitching we had to do a lot of like pitching motions and like everything that I was doing was like literally what I really did, you know? So, and then um, I needed to speak both languages. There were monologues in both Japanese and English. And, um, you know, it was a really juicy role, actually. Uh, it was almost like I was just lucky, um, you know, as if that role was written for me. Uh, it turns out that that role was actually written for uh, a friend of mine um, who had been in the acting world for many, many years prior um, and James Yagashi, still a you know Broadway actor, um, that role was written for him because he was bilingual, and so it just so happened that you know he was done you know doing other projects, and then now you know the next best guy I guess for that role was myself, and that was you know purely because of the language part. Uh, so even my acting was helped on by my language skills. That's awesome. I'm glad you said. I like the the term you use, tiebreaker, because we talk a lot about. Um, on the podcast, uh, even in my solo episodes, you know, like whether you're going to be a pro or whether you can do something else with sports or something completely unrelated to sports, 
it's it's a difficult industry to get into and there's a lot of people that mm -hmm. want jobs so whether you're fighting for that starting point guard position or to get a contract or you're trying to get that acting job it's like what differentiates you and mm -hmm. language could be that right and and yeah. it's funny you, you tied it into my next topic of of acting because and, and i've never acted but i to this day on my cv or my resume or an interview uh -huh. or anytime I'm talking about it i say the one of the one of the most important classes that i took in college was drama because okay. it just it it allowed me to to fail quickly because i was so bad at it but you have to improvise you have to get up in front of the class you have to speak you have to yep. memorize lines you have to really um you know get out of your comfort zone and and so yeah if there's anything that the audience can take away from 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 this little little side conversation is um acting acting and language skills like it's you don't really think about it much but that could be your tiebreaker right. so hopefully that helps someone out there yeah and i think acting class like uh whether it's related to language or not but just just even like i think the idea of like facing the music you know or mm. uh you know having to like um, you know, just like having to do something, having to like stand up and do something um, where it's ultimately on you. Right. So uh, in my case, um, it's a little different now, but even as the general manager, there are more instances for me, um, you know, have to do public speaking. Uh, so I think my acting and actually, uh, I don't mention this often, but, you know, as a hobby, in order to try and help my acting, in order to like help me uh, have more courage for me to become more brave when I lived in New York for 10 years, um, I actually did a little stand-up comedy as well and failed miserably at it. But the thing is, so uh, you're good. out there on stage and you're like, basically like, you know, you feel very naked out there. And when you bomb, it's awful. It's the worst feeling. Like you feel so little. But the thing is, you keep doing it, right? And then sometimes it works. Like sometimes it's just the crowd sometimes, you know, you don't blame yourself at that point. You go sometimes, wow crappy crowd you know screw them you know because sometimes you do the same set and then it just goes really well or sometimes it bombs and it just it is what it is you know it's probably like an athlete um you know just one day the shots don't go in or whatever right uh, but the thing is like so you just kind of have to let go and you just have to like move on right and um and also as far as like the public speaking um just trying to be, um, you know, present, the presentational aspects, um, the aspects, uh, especially in Japan, a lot of the executives, sometimes like um, they would get up on stage and I don't know if it's because of nerves or uh, maybe because they feel like they have to be so formal. It's not very entertaining. Um, but, you know, if you can make people laugh, like even better. Right. So I think that uh, my sort of um, experience in acting, especially because a lot of those plays that I did were like comedic plays, um, I felt like I learned to trust people more, you know, I felt like I learned to trust strangers where like, if you go up on stage and you tell a joke and you trust that they're going to like you, you trust that they're going to laugh at your jokes. Um, so that kind of like, I think, um, communication, um, you know, that's, those are things that probably like can only be learned through experience. Um, but you know, drama class is one, one way of doing that, you know, like, uh, facing fears or, um, you know, whatever it is, just getting used to failure, I guess, you know? Um, so the acting part for me has helped me tremendously, uh, with what I'm doing right now. That's so good. And as you could tell already, obviously it's a very unique background for, um, for a general manager in, in, in basketball yeah. sports. And, and obviously these skill yeah. sets are, you know, 
all used now on your on your uh, in your day to day. So uh, moving forward a little bit and, and not to skip yep. over a lot of the steps, because as I mentioned, sure. you know, we can we can probably sit here and talk about all the different jobs <laughs> and responsibilities. But as we try yeah. to shift towards uh, talking about Japanese basketball, the one stop before yep. where you are mm-hmm. now is the Washington Wizards was at the Washington yep. Wizards. So yes. I think a re- really unique uh, job and opportunity. So can, can you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, what led to that opportunity um, what your roles and responsibilities were. I think it's, you know, it was just, it was huge for the, for the audience of, of, of Japan to, you know, to see, um, you know, one of their own right star in the NBA. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about, about that opportunity. Yeah. Like, you know, I was so fortunate to be put in that position because, you know, Rui Hachimura, um, you know, the first Japanese player to ever be drafted in the first round, right. Um, in the NBA, Um, ninth overall by the Wizards in 2019. Um, He was a real riser. Like he only started playing basketball when he was 13. Uh, He was a junior. So he only had played what, like eight years, seven years of basketball. And then to go to have like kind of that raw athleticism to go from this, um, you know, small town, you know, gem, maybe hidden gem to like, you know, going to a big time high school program uh, in Japan and then joining the national team. And then people are like, oh my gosh, like this guy, maybe he could make the NBA. Uh, and then he gets drafted, you know, in the first round uh, by the Wizards. And so it all happened so fast for him too, right? And now, you know, he's successful with the Lakers. Um, but then for me, like I had like no zero connection to like Rui Hachimura. I had zero connection to Washington Wizards or the NBA. Um, just, I was just looking at it as an observer. Uh, actually, I was uh, also um, a part-time like interpreter for Rakuten TV in Japan. So they're the broadcaster. Uh, they're the um, national broadcaster of the NBA in Japan. It's a streaming service. And, you know, while they have play-by-play and color commentary announcers, uh, I was the uh, live on-air interpreter. So what they did on their broadcast was they would air like ESPN or TNT or regional broadcast. And whenever the reporter uh, would you know, uh, do a report, uh, whether they appeared on camera or whether they did a sideline report. Um, the They wanted to make sure that the viewers of those broadcasts, they weren't um, just like left hung out the dry. Like, you know, these were like valuable pieces of information, right? And the play-by-play guy or the color commentary guy, um, they wouldn't speak English or they wouldn't understand English. So they hired interpreters to like do that, um, you know, simultaneous interpreting slash report. So I did that for a full season. And interestingly, I actually did that for the NBA draft in 2019. So I'm like, you know, to me, it was interesting, like Zion Williamson and John Mm -hmm. Morant and like those guys, you know, being drafted and I'm doing the interpreting uh, and then and then Rui Hachimura later. And then like no one expected him to be drafted that high that like our studio in Tokyo was like all going crazy. Right. And actually, because that was like a heavy workload that they had not usually it's just one interpreter, but they had two interpreters for that NBA draft. So um, it wasn't my turn when it came to Rui's uh, selection. Uh, It was uh, my buddy and colleague, uh, Risuke, another, um, you know, arena MC slash interpreter, very well-known guy in Japan. Uh, And he was doing the Rui because he's like, okay, I'm doing the wizards. Okay. Then you do the, um, you know, the Pelicans or whatever. Right. And so I'm like, oh man, I missed my chance. You know, in fact, it's like, 
because Rui did, you know, his interview in, um, you know, in English, obviously, right? So my friend Risuke is interpreting that uh, into Japanese. And I'm like, wow, Rui, I can't believe he's drafted so high. And then meanwhile, I'm like, oh, I missed my chance to interpret for Rui, you know? Um, and in Little fact, did you know. The, yeah, little did I know. And in fact, even actually a few months prior during March Madness, uh, Rakuten TV, because of Rui's team, Gonzaga being, in, um, you know, getting into the final four, getting deep into the elite eight. Right. Um, and so they aired every game that Gonzaga played. And again, I did the interpreting for that. But the games that Rui, like for whatever reason, the games that I interpreted, Randon Clark kept performing well. So he would be the guy doing the post-game interview. So I kept inter- um, I kept interpreting for Brandon Clark. I'm like, oh, when am I going to get a chance to interpret for Rui, you know? So it was always like, um, like I was watching him from afar and admiring him from afar. And then, um, you know, so a month after the draft, um, I get this random uh, message uh, on Facebook Messenger from an old, like, colleague that I'd worked with just a couple times. And this is actually like a an interesting lesson for me because – um, basically, what it was was that this guy that I'd worked with uh, many, many years ago had sent me a note from Monumental Sports um, and Entertainment, uh, the mm-hmm. parent company of the Wizards, saying that they are looking for a Japanese correspondent slash producer uh, to start up these new social media channels for the Washington Wizards because Rui Hachimura joined the team. What, what happened was that uh, the Wizards were taken aback. They didn't. They didn't know. Like it's like Major League Baseball teams. They know when, whenever they sign a Japanese guy, that Japanese media is going to like, you know, rush the media session. Mm-hmm. Right? Like hundreds of media will show up for those sessions, and they're ready for it. But you know, the NBA or the Washington Wizards, they weren't ready for this. They, you know, they po- kind of had an idea, but I think they thought like, oh, I'm sure we'll get dozens of reporters, not hundreds, right? So the day after Rui was drafted and he was drafted at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, the next day Rui traveled to Washington, D.C. And at Capital One Arena, there's like hundreds of Japanese media. And that's when the Wizards are like, wait a minute, like we need to do something in-house. We need to start up our own channels. And so that's how this came to be, right? Like, let's start our own channels and then let's hire language specialists uh, who also can do stand-ups, you know, reporters, editors, videographers, that kind of thing. And then ended up with a three-person team, uh, which lasted for the four seasons that I was with the Wizards. Um, you know, I was there until this past season. But but for me, the biggest lesson, actually, of course, I ended up working for this great organization, working with Rui, uh, learning about the NBA, traveling with the team for that first 2019-2020 season uh, before the pandemic hit, like, staying at like every NBA hotel, like just going like, what? Like these are unbelievable places that, you know, the kind of life they lead. However, uh, seeing how hard the travel is too. So just seeing like the highs and lows of an NBA player's life. Right. Um, so it was a great experience for me, uh, as a, you know, team in-house, uh, sports journalist. Um, but the way I got this job, which is like very interesting, is before I even, you know, got to the point of like interviewing with a monumental sports and entertainment producer who ultimately just felt like I was the best fit, you know, with my experience. Um, but was that the random message that I got on Facebook Messenger was from this cameraman, this Japanese cameraman who's based in New York, who I had worked with just twice, like 10 years prior. Like, it's the most amazing thing. Like, we had not been in touch, like, since those 10 years. But I just happened to be 
a New York based, um, you know, at the time I worked for uh, also a Japanese while I was acting, I was also doing like reporting for Japanese TV. And uh, I was an NFL reporter, there's a weekly NFL show, there still is a weekly NFL show in Japan. Uh, and I was the uh, local like on site reporter. So based out of New York. So I would go to a lot of Giants practices, Jets practices. Sometimes we'd fly or I'd go to Eagles practices and interview players, you know, interviewing like Michael Vick, interviewing Eli Manning, going to the Super Bowls. You know, I went to like 12 consecutive Super Bowls, actually, which was like the coolest thing ever. Um, but anyway, so I had like a partner in crime. I had this like cameraman slash director who would always go out in the field with me and we'd work, you know, in tandem for like those six years together. But just every now and then he wouldn't be available and we would hire this like, you know, outside freelance cameraman. It just happened to be that I worked with this one man twice, 10 years ago, who just happened to remember me uh, when he heard about this monumental sports uh, job opening, the Wizards job opening. The first person, I guess, for some reason he thought of was me. He's like, oh, I think Zach would be perfect for this job. And that's why he messaged me. And I'm like, wow, like, how did you even remember me? Like, how are you? Like, you know, what's going on? Are you still living in New York? You know? And so I think it goes to show that, you know, I mean, I'd like to say, if I may say so myself, that I think is like my professionalism, even 10 years prior, right? Uh, that that had left an impression on him. Like, hey, this guy, like, he's got his stuff together, you know? We, you know, especially because I wasn't with my director that day. So I was like a reporter slash director and telling the cameraman, okay, like after this, you know, let's go and interview uh, so-and-so, you know, let's go and interview Eli Manning, um, you know, Tom Coughlin press conference, you know, after that, I'll ask a question, whatever it is, like, you know, I had everything like in order. So I think that, and he was impressed with kind of my um, professionalism and that's what he remembered about me. And that's why he thought of me, right? 10 years later when the Rui job came up so to me like that was like the biggest thing where it's like wow like totally random it wasn't anything that I had been working towards it just happened to fall on my lap um but you know I was ready for that job because of the experience that I had already um you know had at that point and the resume that I had built up yeah yeah I I love that I mean I think that that obviously, you know, you can say a little bit is, is right time, right place and fate, but also it just speaks to yep. how powerful networking is and first impressions, because mm -hmm. you, you really never know who's watching. I mean, there, there's, there's draft NBA draft stories about a guy getting drafted. And I'm sure it was part of the story for Rui where, you know, there's one specific thing that player did in pre in, in warmups when no one's watching or three seasons ago when they helped someone off the court yep. that someone's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to draft this player or I'm going to hire this guy. Um, so that's For great. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. Um, well, look, yeah. I think I think the first first half of the episode was uh, was awesome <laughs> to kind of dive into your dive into your yeah. uh, experience and 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 learn yes. more about you. But now let's let's transition a little bit to Japanese basketball and and yes, talk more yes. about Tokushima. So. Um, mm -hmm. real quickly for the audience, um, yeah. I think it would help if maybe you just gave a little bit of an overview of Japanese basketball. I've talked about it on some episodes before, but you know, maybe yeah. like, you know, what the culture is like and, you know, a little bit about the leagues and then we'll, and then we'll dive more specific into Tokushima. Sure. Sure. So, uh, right now, you know, Japanese professional basketball, the league is called the B league. Uh, and there's three divisions, right? Uh, so it's not like, uh, say, Major League Baseball or the NFL, where it's like, you know, the top division, right? Uh, it's almost like you can compare it to like European soccer, where you have first division, second division, and then a team can be promoted or relegated. So, um, you know, among, across those three divisions, there's 56 teams. So the first division, B1, has 24 teams. 
The second division has 14 teams and the third division has 18 teams. Um, the third division uh, last year had 16 teams, but this year uh, they expanded and there are two new teams and we're one of those two teams. So now third division, there's 18 teams. Of course, you know, we love to be like starting in B2 or B1, but you know, as an expansion team, you have to start from the bottom, right? So that's why we're in the B3 uh, with 18 team league. It's almost like one big conference. Uh, there's no divisions. Uh, you know, it's just one, you know, whole big 18 team conference or division, if you will. Um, and then how we would try and get up to the B2 is if we finish in the top two uh, of this 18 team division. Uh, actually, uh, next April, like at the end of the regular season, uh, we would have a playoff and uh, the top eight teams out of the 18 teams qualify. And then uh, so it's eight teams. So it's almost like starting at the quarterfinals, right? So you move up, you got the semifinals, and then whoever stays and plays in the finals, those two teams are the considered the top two teams that move up to B2, uh, B League Division Two, uh, for next season. Uh, and the league uh, began in 2016. So it's a relatively young league. Um, Japan actually has had like on and off like professional leagues, or maybe one could call it like industrial league. Uh, teams um, it's kind of had an interesting history and you know that would require like a whole different show um, but, sure. you know, as of 2016 it was basically like two different leagues um, that um, that combined right the NBL uh, which was like comprised mostly of like industry like um, corporation back teams and then the BJ league which were like a regional um, club teams but professional teams and so they merged <laughs> And they formed the B League in 2016. So finally, like they created this, um, you know, one league, uh, which, you know, by the way, also like FIBA um, kind of had, you know, asked Japan to like merge those leagues or else like Japan is not going to be, you know, eligible for future, you know, national tournaments. So they needed to do this. But so as of 2016, uh, there's this B League in Japan and, um, you know, it's an up and up league. Um, the talent level is going up every year. Um, I mean, certainly B1, you know, for example, um, you know, the Chiba Jets, I think they were champions two years ago. Uh, they're, uh, you know, one of the top money spending uh, teams in the league. And they just acquired midseason Xavier Cooks, uh, who's with the Washington Wizards. So, you know, you're talking about like NBA talent and not just him. You know, he's actually formerly a Sydney Kings NBL Australia player. Um, but many, many former NBA talents playing in the B league first division in B one. Uh, and the same can be said for B two and then, you know, B three, um, you know, a few years back might've been thought of as like, Oh, you know, there's just like a minor league um, division. Um, however, um, like, as I said, because the expansion teams have to start from the bottom and the expansion teams, um, you know, they have to go through quite a rigorous process in order to be accepted into the league, um, you know, financial, the books had to be good. Um, you know, the organization had to be solid. The parent company had to be solid. Uh, there were so many like restrictions and guidelines that they had to go through that I think naturally these expansion teams are happen to be like more successful off the bat. Uh, the Nagasaki Velka team is a good example. A few years ago, um, first season, their inaugural franchise team, first season, they were 47 and three. That's just insane, right? And then they move up mm -hmm. quickly to B2. And then last year, they were successful in B2. And now they're in B1. So within two years, they're up in the first division. So um, and that's all possible because of good management and good, um, you know, front office 
um, good coaching, good players. Uh, so because of the teams, you know, like Nagasaki Velka, the Altiri Chiba, another team that uh, dominating B2, who started just in the B3 a few years ago. And because of those teams joining the B3, um, that's really leveled up the whole league in general. So I, I'd say a few years ago, B3 basketball, some would consider it to be like, wow, like this really is like the minor leagues. But now it's like highly competitive. So uh, the basketball league that, you know, we're part of the Tokushima Gamboros, I'd say is like, you know, honestly, um, very, very competitive and uh, lots of game planning. Um, you know, not too many games, you know, but still 52 games in a season. Uh, so it's fairly substantial. But the beauty of it is actually it's almost like looking at a football schedule because the games are on the weekends and I know they're back to back. So it's tough on the players. Uh, but the fact is that it's on the weekends. That's good because it gives you a whole week of practice and game planning. So by the time the games roll around, you're not just kind of like playing it for the sake of playing the game. Uh, both teams have really schemed for each other. And so it's really high quality basketball. For sure. And and you said, uh, you know, you mentioned it's it's an up and up league. I mean, it's it's more than an up and up league. I've told you this many times. I think, you know, Japanese basketball is at a place right now where it's uh, top tier, um, you know, top one of the top Asian leagues and, and growing. And you see over the past mm -hmm. couple of off seasons, you see a lot of um, American players that would typically uh, want to play in Europe at a high level have shifted over and have have joined Asian teams, uh, a lot of them in yep. Japan. Um, and so, sure. yeah, I, I just, I, I can't speak high enough about the, you know, the culture of basketball, their professionalism. And, and you talked about it a little bit, but I think that's one of the reasons that it's so successful because there are specific rules. You have to be, you have to be professional. You have to be transparent and you have to have, you know, proper, um, your, your, your books need to be in, you know, in alignment. You have to have proper funding. Mm -hmm. Um, all mm -hmm. of those little details that get overlooked a lot is why some teams in other markets around the world are not as successful in some leagues, in my opinion. Um, yep. and so just yep. kind of talking about the difference a little bit, you know, can you, mm -hmm. can you touch on a bit like the style of play, uh, even, even if it's a, uh, an example versus the NBA. Like I, I say a lot. Well, you know, generally speaking, versus basketball in the states, when you go abroad, um, and mm -hmm. this could vary on where you're going, but it's a lot more team oriented versus the individual style of AAU or college basketball here in the states. Right. Like for the B three league, I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of the differences that you notice, or what makes a team so successful from the style of play that that you uh, integrate? For sure. Um, and I guess, you know, it still depends on the team, right? Because who are their best players? Like who's the best player on the team and you want to play through him. Uh, so that's going to really change the style of play from team to team. Uh, some are really up-tempo. Uh, we're very up-tempo. We're five out offense. Uh, some are more like, you know, definitely like traditional big man and you play, you know, through the post uh, with that big man. Uh, it's more bully ball, like 1990s NBA basketball. Um, you know, some teams are getting to the point of, uh, or at least we're trying to uh, be more positionless and sort of like the way the modern NBA plays where we're really kind of like attuned to the analytics of it, uh, where we're only looking for, you know, attacking the paint, you know, paint touches and, um, you know, attacking the rim, um, just really shoot like, you know, shooting like just around the rim. If not, you know, we're kicking out and uh, shooting threes. So if you look at our spray chart, I'd say like a lot of our shots come from just around the ring, uh, the rim, and then also around the three-point line. Whereas, you know, other teams maybe still do more mid-range shooting, or if not, like a lot of it is in the post. Uh, so it really depends. But 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, right now, like the NBA looks for um, tall guys, like let's say, you know, prototypical or a perfect, um, you know, NBA body would be uh, 6'8 or 6'9 and maybe 210 pounds, 220 who can run. And it's like, you got like five guys like that, even, you know, it's like small ball lineups. Um, Japan is sort of almost, you know, where the traditional big men in the NBA, like used to be successful. It seems like those talents have gone to either Europe or who they've also come to Japan. So a lot of these non-stretch bigs or the non-outside shooting bigs, still, there are a lot of them in Japan as well, right? So uh, depending on the team, um, they're going to play a lot of like high-low, and like you know playing inside uh so that's prevalent over here um but again in our case it's more positionless and five out but uh and up tempo but um you know having said that even despite the different styles here i think there is a lot of ball movement and there is a lot of like motion and screens and i think that's just simply because um you know in some cases you know um obviously the NBA could just get away with ISO ball, right? Because like individuals are just so talented and those kind of specimens are going to just be in the NBA. So um, it's not that these players here are flawed in any way, but they're not going to be like that, you know, one in a million player either, you know, maybe they're more like one in a hundred thousand or something, you know, they're still highly elite players, um, but not everyone's going to be a three level scorer not everyone's going to be able to run up and down the floor like crazy or not everyone, maybe the most athletic guy, maybe he just can't th shoot threes or whatever it is. So you're going to have like varying degrees of like um, aptitude on the floor at all times. Right. So as a result, I think, you know, you have to really game plan around your personnel. And so that's why I feel like, um, I mean, there's still lots of pick and rolls, but um, you know, that's, it's just going to be lots, lots more ball movement, and a lot of screening. So maybe in terms of the um, strategy, uh, it's like watching maybe sophisticated, um, you know, NCAA college basketball teams, you know, who don't have the top NBA prospects. Uh, so in terms of like the X and O's, I'd say, and I'm not even an expert, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, basically just still like looking at it from like a journalist point of view, you know, uh, I'm like an advanced fans point of view. Uh, but, you know, I, I wish I could speak almost from a coach's point of view. I'm kind of like trying to I'm doing the fast track right now. You know, I'm sitting as a GM. I'm trying to be at every meeting. I'm trying to be at every practice. And, you know, I watch um, DeMarcus coach DeMarcus Berry, our head coach, and Daniel Kim and Takayuki Hisakawa. And they're breaking down film. And uh, it's super, super educational for me. Um, but, you know, you see the um, different play calls, the different sets that teams run and um you know it's definitely not they're not relying on iso ball i'll tell you that for sure yeah i, I and i love that too because uh you know obviously we talked about your unique background and um you know some gms or front office members are are basketball guys through and through and some are not yeah um but you know yeah. even when when i was out there um you know in the in the spring or or, or in the summer you know sitting in the yeah. film session it's like you're sitting right next to me you're, you're taking notes you're watching the film which is amazing yes. i love that um, yes. so yes. so but as a as a gm um you know mm -hmm. outside of outside of you know analytics and 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 really knowing the game x's and o's you have a lot of other responsibilities so maybe uh, yes. can you talk about that a little bit about you know what your overarching role is 
um, some of the other responsibilities that maybe people don't really think about um, when when they think about a GM. They think about just, okay, drafting a player and picking a player, which, yeah, sure, we can talk right, about right. how you select your imports. But right. what are some of the other roles that you have that people might not know of? Sure, sure. And, you know, you're right. Like when you think of GM, you're thinking of like breaking down film uh, along with the scouts or reading the reports and, um, you know, looking through pouring over stats, uh, which, you know, all that I've done as well. Right. Um, because I've been a stats nerd as well all my life, not just like, a, you know, a failed um, stand up comic, but also I'm a stats <laughs> nerd, right. So that helps because like, honestly, like I feel like I'm pretty good about looking at advanced analytics and understanding them. Uh, so that part like has helped me with this job as well. So that's why, yeah, you know, as like any other GM uh, or like what anyone would um, expect of a GM, uh, player acquisition and coach acquisition, um, you know, getting the team together, uh, that was a big part of my role. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, like I did that in the summer. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm done with that. So like now what, right? But then, then there's kind of the daily troubleshooting uh, that pop up it could be anywhere from like um you know let's say not that there's anything wrong with any contracts that we drew up but like if the league had a question about something and and especially like if it's a japanese contract we have a japanese team president here so he'll take care of it but if it's an english supplemental contract like i have to be the one to like look over that and you know i'm not necessarily like not a lawyer or anything but because of my english skills like I have to kind of like really put on that like literal thinking cap and like really read, like, you know, read over the contract and, you know, make sure that like the wording or the verbiage, you know, that everything is legally sound. So it's like, you know, I'm thinking, wow, okay, GMs really have to do these kind of like, you know, these are, I'm not about to say they're boring. These are like serious, important things, right? Real life things, because it has to do with like people getting paid, right? So uh, so there's that part, like it's super dry. So I'm like, okay, I got to do that stuff. Um, guess what? Uh, when the imports, uh, you know, getting them the visas, you know, I have to help them with that, uh, being in touch with the immigration lawyers. And it's like, okay, well, how long is this going to take? And, you know, meanwhile, Coach longer Barry's than like, you well, think, how come, how, yeah, how come it's taking five weeks? Like what's going on? We need to have them sooner. And I'm like, listen, we're working on it. Right. Um, getting them their visas, but then suddenly the immigration lawyers are like, oh, wait a minute, we're getting the visa sooner than we thought. It's like, not not four weeks from now, but two weeks. I'm like, oh, damn, okay. Now I got to go to the real estate agent. Um, you know, of course, the team president, um, you know, as a B3 team, you know, as a startup team, uh, one of the things was we didn't really kind of have that whole staff assembled yet. So everyone's wearing different hats. So I'm having to go to the real estate agent and uh, look for apartments for the imports. Uh, so that's good. I'm like, okay, hey, you know, my colleague, team president, I'll call him up and I'll say, hey, we got we got an apartment. We got uh, for the three imports, we got uh, three apartments in the same building, like perfect, right? So so now what? Um, we got to get him furniture. We got to get him appliances. It's in the contract. We got to get him a rental car, um, you know, and, you know, so I can sort of almost outsource that. You know, we have staff like who uh, actually not in Tokushima, which is a regional city, right? But you know, hours flight away in Tokyo, that's where our parent company is. So you know, we have staff that we could rely on in Tokyo and say, hey, here's a list of things that we can um, get for appliances and furniture for the players. And they're doing it off the internet. Um, but the problem is, like, it's just way too expensive. I'm like, you know, I know places in Tokushima, I haven't lived there for a few weeks at that point. I had found places that I could find, like, 
you know, furniture for uh, at a lesser cost and appliances because the team's trying to save money, right? I'm trying to help the team save money so that we can acquire better players. So I don't want to waste money on like high-end furniture. No offense to the players. They still have good furniture. We don't need to like overspend on furniture, right? So I'm having to go these like, so now like, you know, because we have a staff shortage, like I'm the one going uh, with the company credit card to the furniture store and to the appliance store. And then like, okay, like what's the perfect bed, you know, you know, and I'm, I'm actually lying on it because I'm like <laughs> thinking about it from the perspective of player. Like I don't want to have a lower back issue. Like I got to make sure the mattress is nice, you know? So finding the best, then I go to like um, a bed, bath and beyond type of store in Japan. Right. So I'm getting their beddings. I'm getting their pillows, their blankets, their everything. Right. Um, finally, um, like, I'm not even joking to the point of, I'm actually making their bed the day that they arrive. So not only am I like, and then I'm also driving them, um, you know, until they get their rental car or some coaches, like, you know, they still need to be driven, uh, players. So I still drive them or like, we kind of split up the duties. Right. But I'll, I'll still get a call, you know, that, that day, like today, you know, I had a call from the player saying, Hey, listen, like my normal ride had to go somewhere earlier. He had to go to the gym first or something like that so i'm like okay yeah so i have to go pick them up um so i'm like you know what i tell demarcus what i am it's like i'm like a soccer mom basically so it's not even it's like a gm but i'm a soccer mom man that's awesome i'm driving players i'm taking them grocery shopping like so that's what you know when you have import players right when you have three american players who are not used to life in japan and it's their first time here in japan and, and we kind of went, you know, our our way of doing it was we wanted to make sure we acquired import players who are here for the first time in Japan, because by doing so, they don't have a career established in Japan yet. So it's a little more team friendly, like contractually, we could get a more team friendly contract that way. So that all meant that, you know, I had to be more of a soccer mom, basically. Uh, so that's what a GM does. And then in my case, in, in my particular case, um, you know, when we were assembling staff, um, you know, we were looking for an interpreter, but it's very hard to find like really talented full-time interpreters. And that's when, you know, our, one of our assistant coaches is uh, fluent in both languages, but, you know, we can't um, have the burden of him having an interpreter at all times. So uh, he became like the on-court interpreter. And then I said, okay, I'll handle all the media interpreting. So I'm also an interpreter. Um, I'm almost like the PR person. And also, I'm actually the um, arena public address announcer uh, on at home games for the English part, you know, whenever, um, you know, because everything is announced in Japanese, but, you know, the team president, you know, the team, the parent company, they want to do everything slick, right? They want to make it like a very cool, hip English mm-hmm. announcement, you know, the starting mm-hmm. starting lineup. And actually, that was one of the jobs that I had done before, prior to this, uh, you know, as well as a reporter and sports journalist. Uh, I was a public address announcer. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm pretty confident that I could do a pretty good job. And uh, they heard me do it once and they're like, oh, please, can you do our home games? So I'm like, okay. So on game days, I'm also the, um, you know, kind of um, not not for the whole game, but, you know, at least for the starting lineup. Uh, I'm the, um, you know, English language uh, uh, public address announcer. And also there's a, uh, you know, and this is, I'm actually fortunate and happy to do this, but there's like in the pregame, um, uh, like the segment, you know, leading up to tip off, you know, I have like a 10 minute segment where I do like a sideline report as well. So honestly, like, I feel like my job description from, you know, the jobs that I've had before, like hasn't changed at all. 
Right. Except, you know, on top of that, I'm the soccer mom. So <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm, I, that was perfect. I'm glad that you kind of dove into that because a lot of, again, <laughs> yeah. if you're the audience just doesn't understand. Uh, I mean, if you could say that about anything, right? Like, you know, Steph Curry, yeah. you see his highlights. You don't see what he does behind the scenes. You know, a, a lot of people mm-hmm. think agents, agents jobs are going sitting courtside at the Lakers game and driving Lamborghinis. And it's like, you know, people don't right, really right. know what the, what the label yeah. is. Um, well, one thing for that sure. you mentioned a few times that I'd love for you to talk yep. about, uh, which I don't think really yep. is talked about much at all, is kind of on uh-huh. the business model side of the league, right? You talked about the parent company yes. of teams. Yep. And, uh, yep. you know, if you follow Japanese basketball at all, you might be familiar a little bit with like the Hitachi Sunrockers, which is now Sega Sammy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know Hitachi yep. from being a big, you know, multi-national uh, conglomerate, right? But Um, Can you talk a little bit about that of, uh, you know, just the history and culture of having a a big corporation essentially be the sponsor, um, but wanting to have Mm -hmm. their name, you know, they're almost like the, you know, the title sponsor, but also some of them have have gyms at their facilities and, you know, or or facilities at their at their corporations. Right. So talk a little bit about that that relationship, Um, because obviously they they support you financially, but they're also kind of part of the mix. Yes. And that's more prevalent, actually, in baseball, for example, right? Because when you still look at Japanese baseball, and, you know, I don't know if, you know, how many of your listeners may be familiar, but uh, most recently, say, like the Hanshin Tigers, right, Uh, just won the Japan Series. And Hanshin is not the name of a city or a region. It's the name of a train company, right? So it's the Hanshin Railways. Uh, And so that's, like, actually right on the um, uniform. Um, Whereas in the case of the B-League, Um, it's not uh, necessarily like the team's sponsor or title sponsor or parent company whose name is on the uniform. Well, um, they might have a sponsor patch, which is bigger than the NBA patch. So like it's really right smack in the middle, but they may not actually be the parent um, company in in that case. For example, like so the Hitachi Sunrockers, back in the day they were Hitachi, right? But now Mm -hmm. they're the Shibuya Sunrockers. So that was uh, made different. Uh, starting in 2016 when the B League was officially formed. So prior to that, it was those industrial league, um, you know, company teams, um, you know, even though they were kind of like semi-professional. So these players like uh, officially work for these companies, but it's not that they actually did any desk work. Um, their job was just go to go to the gym and practice. So uh, they would just, you know, they would like literally they're like de facto professional basketball players um, but they still got paid by that company uh, rather than by the team. So it gave the impression that they were still employees of the Hitachi company. Um, but, you know, also um, the Tokyo Alvark, Alvark Tokyo, another uh, big time franchise in the B-League first division in B1. Um, they're a Toyota team, right? So that's probably one of the biggest corporations in the world. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so then you have that. Um, once you get to actually the B2 or B3 level, uh, those teams actually, um, their origin, uh, a lot of them, and not all of them, but a lot of them came, their origins actually came from, um, you know, BJ League teams, so club teams, so professional teams that were formed under whatever ownership. In some cases, it was almost probably like crowdfunding, you know, like not the modern day crowdfunding, but probably like uh, people in the region, like just getting investors, you know, getting rallying people up to like invest money into this new team. Uh, so it was more like, um, I don't, how, how would I put it? Like, not like a big time, um, you know, conglomerate uh, pouring money into it, but maybe smaller businesses that are just collecting money to invest into this team. So 
they they have an operational budget. Um, but in our case, for example, the Tokushima Gamboros, uh, our parent company or, or our majority um, team owner is the Media Do Company, uh, which is a big time uh, publicly traded company uh, based in Tokyo, uh, whose owner happens to be from Tokushima. So he had this very huge sort of um, you know, stake and wanting to sort of reinvest in his hometown, uh, which he felt like could be doing much better economically. It's not economically depressed, uh, but it's, I wouldn't call it vibrant either. There's a lot of great natural resources and it's somewhat overlooked as a kind of a rural city, smaller city in Japan. And he wanted to kind of revitalize that area and that city. Uh, so that's why he elected to form this franchise, you know, in his hometown of Tokushima. Um, but Media Do is um, an ebook distribution company. So uh, they're like the equivalent of actually in Japan, they're a direct competitor to Amazon Kindle. Uh, so it's that kind of big time company uh, with um, big pockets. Right. And that's why they're able to invest heavily into a team uh, without breaking the bank, you know. And in fact, um, they're still, in my opinion, <laughs> And for GM to say this, I know I'm not like talking crap about our owner, like whatsoever. Uh, you know, there's a really big, big commitment to investing. But I think that they've still told me like, OK, let's show some financial restraint. Uh, for example, the Fukui Blow-Ins, another expansion team in the B3 League. Um, I think their um, parent company, I don't know the name of the company offhand or at least right now, I can't remember, but it's like in um, like Wi-Fi or it's like, I think some kind of like uh, techno technology company. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, they're a very big time company as well, but they've just gone ahead and say, hey, let's spend, let's spend as much as we can. Uh, let's not hold back. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I'm happy for that parent company to tell the team like, hey, let's make it a successful team in order to be a good team. You got to spend. You know, and I don't disagree with that. Um, however, you know, just because you're spending a ton, you know, doesn't mean that that's going to equate to winning to wins. Right. Uh, big budget doesn't necessarily equal winning percentage. Uh, I, you know, I think that there's some correlation. Um, it's certainly better than not to spend. Um, but I think that there is a way to do it strategically, too. Right. So I think we're kind of a, not a top budget team, but kind of middle middle budget team in the 18 team league. Um, but, you know, finding ways, you know, smart ways to try and, um, you know, create a successful team with with, you know, and again, it's not meager in any way whatsoever. Like it's still a super generous budget. Um, but you know, I want to like take the playbook out of say like a Tampa Bay Rays playbook, you know, um, and try and make a successful team out of a somewhat limited budget. Um, and I felt like if you, if we can go about this strategically and DeMarcus Barry and I went about this strategically. So I think that, you know, so far so good. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that uh, we spend wisely. And so, I think all that kind of comes back to the parent company because say, you know, in Fukui's case, you have a parent company that says, okay, go spend. And so it's like, you know, make sure you get good players. And they really did. They got a bunch of players mm -hmm. who have tons of B1 and B2 experience. And in our case, you know, I went to the ownership, um, you know, they said, we're going to, we're willing to commit this much to the team. And so I said, okay, if, if we're going to spend this much, then, 
you know, uh, we do have to make decisions. Uh, we can't just go spend wildly either. We're not going to be able to get experienced players from the B1. So uh, let's spend smartly. Let's not spend top heavy. Let's try and spread the money across the board so we have a deep team. Uh, so we went about it strategically. And, and you know, whereas one parent company could say, hey, no, like, why can't you spend more money on the top players and less on the, the bottom of the roster players? But Instead, they they had belief in the way I was going to go about spending the money. And so I think that helps when you have uh, owners that uh, actually kind of let the experts, you know, do the job. And, and I, you know, I'm not even about to call myself an expert because I've just started this. But it's right. the same with like DeMarcus. I'm not going to like butt into the way he coaches because I'm not a coach. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as uh, my, you know, my background in uh, sports journalism or just, you know, my years of. Uh, experience in the sports industry uh the media do company the executives and and the team president who's you know um from that company you know he's not telling me to do things a certain way he just tell, told me a number he said you know this is how much we have and please go spend it wisely and so that's why i'm thankful that we have this kind of progressive thinking ownership group uh that is like fully on board with everything we do no matter what we what we decide uh, it's a breath of fresh air uh, for me, and it has been. I've told you guys this before because, uh, and that's one of the many reasons I think that Japanese basketball and the leagues there are um, more than on the up and up because um, two two main <laughs> reasons is is one you have yeah. most people involved that that play their role right where yes. you just yes. mentioned it like hey you know you you um, you know you're great at what you do but your yeah. title is not coach. Same thing for your, mm -hmm. your upper management. It's like, they're great at what they do. And yes, they control the finances, but like, they're not going to say, right. Hey, this is the player we need because I know he's good at this and this. Um, right. That's right. not their role. They're not a scout. They're not a GM. They're not a coach. Right. So playing right. a role is huge, but also uh, on the other end, um, you know, actually running it like a business, like the fact that, you know, you um, and, and the parent company are saying, Hey, like we don't have unlimited funds. That's actually mm -hmm. a great thing in my mind because other places, mm -hmm. um, and, and and I don't mean to um, you know uh, put Europe down, but the, Europe's an e some teams make it an easy example because it's like, hey, screw it, hey, here's money, go go get the best player. They're not doing well this right. game, go you know cut them and get another player, and we're just paying, and it's not sustainable, right? right? And I talk about right. sustainability a lot, and that's why Japanese basketball is the top, right? Like. Yep. That is a conversation in every meeting before the season, sustainability. Mm -hmm. Where's the money going? Mm -hmm. Who are we spending it on? Is it efficient? And are we actually making money? Because this is a business. I mean, it mm -hmm. is a business. It's not a charity. Like, yeah, you want to mm -hmm. win and you want to make, you know, impact lives and you want to, you know, have fun. But investors want to see a return on their money. And parent companies don't right. want to just spend money without getting in return. Right. 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 For sure. It absolutely is about sustainability. And uh, kind of the ironic thing, or in my opinion, kind of like uh, the one part that, um, you know, I wish it could be more publicized uh, is that in the B League, players' salaries and teams' payrolls are not publicized. Those are not public. Um, and so, um, you know, what I think that it should be a point of pride for some teams, right? Um, you know, for example, mm -hmm. last year's champions, the Ryukyu Golden Kings in the B League Division One. Um, you know, of course, they still have a big payroll, but they're not one of the top spenders. They've always been very, very financially responsible and because they're fully aware that, yes, you know, they have a great arena in Okinawa. But at the same time, 
it is Okinawa. Yes, it's a nice resort um, area in Japan. It also has a lot of backing from, you know, having um, U.S. bases there. So there's also a lot of another demographic that goes to watch basketball. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not Tokyo, right? You know, what's mm -hmm. the population of Okinawa? It's like probably less than a million. What's the population of Tokyo? Like 20 million? So at least. Like, there's a big difference there, right? So it's like if you just look at the four major sports in the States, um, there's differences like in sizes of markets. And there's going to be differences in the sponsors that teams can get. So then at that point, you have to think about sustainability. Uh, the Alvark Tokyos of the world, the Sunrocker Shibuyas of the world, they can spend a lot because they have, you know, conglomerate backing and they're in major markets. But, you know, say Ryukyu, they're not. Um, and it's the same for us, like the Tokushima Gamboros. Yes, we have a very stable, publicly traded company as a parent company but also we're in a city of 100 you know uh, population 250,000 uh it's a small city so we have to think about sustainability and we have to think about like it's also the b3 league like are we going to get 10,000 people in the stands no and actually we broke a record like uh or rather i mean of course we broke a record because it was our opening night but like um <laughs> even when you compare it to other B3 teams, like we had uh, 3,000 plus fans for our opening night game, which is a huge, huge accomplishment. Um, but generally, uh, we're not even in big venues like that. We don't have our own home arena yet. So, you know, we're in this old city arena and we get maybe a thousand plus people. And even then we could still turn a profit. So um, that's because the operational costs are low, right? So we have to be realistic about all those expectations. And and we have to think about like how big is the market, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like you have to be very strategic about it. And I feel like um, it's not the NBA. Um, you know, we have to be like very fully aware of, uh, you know, what what's like what's a realistic goal? Um, you know, you can't just like get carried away. What if, you know, yeah, sure. You know, what if we our, our parent company says, yes, you can spend more money and invest in these players um, but guess what? What if that parent company pulls out, you know, yep. then suddenly you have like no budget. Right. So you have to think about all those things. And, um, you know, same thing with like, I think players, like you just, you can't be looking at like, you know, it, it has to be like mid to long-term success. Even if the players are turned over, um, there has to be sort of some kind of business model, um, that, you know, you know, that you could rely on for, probably, you know, the next five to 10 years. And I know that this is not the way uh, B league works because there's no draft right now, but, but I'm still kind of almost taking a page out of the idea that say, just because as a huge NFL fan and in baseball, but a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan, I hope you don't get mad at me for this. Um, but um, you know, the Eagles during like the Andy Reed uh, era uh, and then have been successful since. Right. Uh, they've, you know, just as a fan, like I've read so many articles about the Philadelphia Eagles and they've always built through the draft. You know, the one season they tried to do a dream team, it like it just blew up. I think they were four and 12 or something. But but basically every other season, they just always believed in building through the draft. And, and so that's where your cost effectiveness is. Right. And also that's where you build your culture. Right. So even though, you know, there's no draft and that's not how, you know, you get it done in the B League. But if you can get young, hungry guys and almost kind of, um, 
you know, have the mindset that you're building uh, like from within, you know, even though we're still getting free agents because we're an expansion team, but uh, you just, as long as you kind of have that mindset and start from there. So you're not trying to get a dream team, you know, you're actually trying to get the best fitting parts. And, and that's what we've done for a team. That's great. Yeah. And, and you said one word that sums it all up, which is, it could be uh, categorized as, as uh, I guess the answer that I give for why international basketball is, uh, is a challenge is transparency. Yeah. Uh, at the yes. end of the day, um, you know, yes, there are other variables and no, I don't like comparing the NBA to any league abroad, uh, but you can go find how much money someone makes and what the budget is, right? You, you can right. find that information. Right. And so when all of that is behind closed doors, that's when it leaves yeah. room for gatekeepers. And, you know, you talk about the agents that, you know, are gatekeepers or the teams that are gatekeepers yeah. or the certain yes. people behind the scenes that just make it difficult to be a sustainable league. Um, so, yeah, obviously I think Japan does that much better than other places. Um, but at the end mm -hmm. of the day, until it's full transparency run like a business, then it's going to, you know, have its challenges. But um, yeah, yeah, there's still no like enough, there's still not enough oversight, in my opinion. I wish this information was public because then that way, yep. and I'm not trying to like take credit for anything, but it's just like that way I think, say, you know, GM Yasunaga at Ryukyu would get more credit for building a yeah. successful franchise sure. uh, with a budget that's probably like so much less than, you know, one of the top teams operating in the B1. And the same could be said for us, you know, who knows where we will be at the end of the season. But, you know, compared to other teams, I think we're very financially responsible. And that's not a bad thing, you know. Like, I think that I wish the media would latch on to that as well. Like, I think it has caught on to a certain extent, um, you know, say, you know, like in Major League Baseball, only because they don't have a salary cap. So there's a disparity of budgets, right? Mm. Uh, you know, in other leagues, whether it's the NBA with the soft cap or the NFL with the hard cap, like, I mean, you know, everyone has to try and play on a, level playing field. Uh, and that's certainly not the case here. Um, yes, the businesses are um, like responsible. There's no, no one's doing dirty. No one's doing anyone dirty in Japan. I'll tell you that. Like, that's why foreign players love to come to Japan because, uh, and mm -hmm. I, I can't speak for certain European leagues. And I, you know, this is like, you know, I don't want to overstep any boundaries or just, you know, talk smack about leagues I don't know about, but I have heard stuff about, you know, guys not getting paychecks on time or in Japan, that's all very done responsibly. So, so that's all good. However, I think there could be improvements. Yeah. And, and, and I can confirm. And I always, I always have the asterisk there that some of my best friends are, are GMs and scouts and coaches in Europe and amazing people and really high level basketball and great, great companies and organizations. But you always have a question mark at some places of, okay, yeah. what's really going on? Does this, is this contract, does this mean anything? Which sometimes, unfortunately, no, it doesn't. But that's mm -hmm. why I've been spending a lot more time in the Asian markets because, you know, Japan specifically, those questions aren't there. Like, you know that yeah, no. when you sign a contract, even if you shake a hand, just culturally speaking, yes. you're, it's going to happen, yes. which is which is amazing. Yeah. Um, that and, um, and agency fee that's going to be wired to you on time. Yes, for sure. I I, I can <laughs> yes. confirm it has been. It, it was received. <laughs> it was received. Um, <laughs> okay, good. That's good. awesome. And and you uh yeah. so so you talked about you know uh you kind of brought up the question of where you guys going to be at the end of the season. Um, as we start to wrap up here, um, yeah, what are the goals for 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 the Gamberus? I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about it. You know, you're tied for second place with a couple of teams. You're twelve and four. Mm -hmm. Um, heading into yep. this weekend, you know, two games on the road, about a little bit more than 25% of the way through the season. 
Um, what yeah. are the goals heading in that you guys had for the team, and uh, and where are we going to see the Gabrus? Are we going to be uh, are we going to be uh, you know elevated to B two or uh, you know what, talk a little mm. bit about the, the 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 vision? Well, I mean, certainly if uh, we could make it up to B two, that would be a great story, right? Uh, in its uh, inaugural season, um, you know, I mean, obviously first uh, we talk about this season being a, a season for building culture. Um, you know, I think that it just kind of goes back to that whole sustainability part that, um, especially with B league team contracts, um, you know, there is no like service years needed for a free agency or anything like that. Um, you know, if, if you sign a young player uh, coming out of college to a one-year deal, then, you know, he's a free agent after that. So unless you sign an extension, um, so I don't know to what extent we would be able to run it back if you will. Uh, for the second season. But the thing is, uh, we may have to turn over a big part of the um, the roster. Uh, so at that point, you know, someone could say, well, what are you talking about culture if the whole team's going to be different? But the thing is, I think when you have uh, stable ownership and when you have a stable front office, uh, very clear vision, and you have talented coaches, uh, even if the players, even if there's a turnover there, I think that we would be able to maintain that kind of the same principles in the program, uh, which is, uh, you know, really believing in the process, making sure there's buy-in, right? Playing like really physical defense, playing all out on defense at all times, you know, this, whatever the talent level is, you know, even if it's like the star player of the team has to play defense, like, you know, be all out, like every single possession. So those kind of principles have to be like hammered into our program and, and that's what this season is about, you know. Uh, you know, Coach Barry's talked talked about this season is about um, building winning habits. Um, those are the things that you know we want to do. So, uh, so once that's in place, like when other teams, even if free agents, you know, next season or the season beyond that, uh, when they come to this team, they know that that's going to be expected of them, and they know that they're going to be coming to a winner. Uh, so those are the things that we want to establish in this first season. So while doing that, if we're actually able to make it to the top two and move up to B2, that would be fantastic. Um, but ownership has said that this is a two-year plan. Uh, so this is what we've told the, the fans and the town. You know, um, this isn't not only a franchise, uh, you know, um, you know, inaugural franchise in its inaugural season, a first-year team, um, you know, but it's also actually uh, the first pro basketball team in Tokushima. So people in Tokushima has never had a, you know, professional basketball team to root for. So um, they're just kind of learning about the team. They're just finally now, like, you know, every weekend that passes, they're like, oh my gosh, like the Gambaros are really good. You know, like it started with one and one, then two and two, and then like four and two. They're like, oh, maybe these guys are good. And then Pretty soon, you know, we've won four in a row and they're like, they're 12 and four. Wow. Like, wow, our Gomboros, they're an expansion team. They're really good. And so they're getting used to the idea that, you know, not only do they have a basketball team in town, but, uh, you know, right now, like that, it's a pretty good team. So, I mean, we want to go as far as we can. Um, but, you know, as I said, first year building culture and then, you know, in two seasons, um, you know, if we can make it up to the B2 and so I think the whole town has rallied around that idea. Um, the only fear that I have, like, let's say, sure, you know, it'd be great to move up to B2 after the first season. But there is one concern, not to sound so pessimistic, but 
Uh, two teams that moved up um, to the B2 from the B3 from last season, uh, Shizuoka and also Iwate. Um, they both had amazing seasons. Uh, Shizuoka in the B2 right now, I think they're 10 and 7. Iwate is 3 and 14. So, again, the 10 and 7 season, that's fine. But the 3 and 14 season doesn't look so good, right? It's tough. Um, they're in danger of being relegated. So, like, what if, and I know it's early, but like, what if, right? You know, we move up to B2. Uh, it's not that we would be getting ahead of ourselves because I feel, I feel like the culture building is going to um, sustain itself. But let's just say we have a few breaks, you know, unlucky breaks, or uh, we miss, you know, we miss fire on some acquisitions. Uh, and then we happen to be relegated. Uh, and then what happens by the third season, we're in B3 again. And that's not going to be, you know, a happy fan base either. So, you know, I'm not saying like, yeah, let's milk this story and do it in two years. Like, sure, the storyline, you know, first year we were close. We were good, but we were close. You know, second year we made it up to B2. Awesome. You know, like that would be a great story. And, you know, who knows how it's going to work out. But, you know, we just want to make sure that everything we do is sustainable. And that's why I think, you know, we're talking about culture first year and, um, you know, second season, um, you know, if we can make it up to B2, I think that would be great. That's awesome. Yeah. Spoken like but, a true professional yeah. because, because it, you have to think about those things. You you have to, I mean, like it, it's, sure. it's nice for you to say, yeah, we're, you know, our goals, our goals B2 or bust. Yeah. We, we need to win. Great. Okay. Well yep. then, you know, you don't think about the fan base. You don't think about the financial repercussions. You don't think about people not wanting right. to come to games anymore. Right. So that's your job as a GM right. to wear those hats, which, which I love. And um, you know, it's interesting real quick because the team president, this is something where I think the day to day, right. Because I'm with the team every day. Um, you know, with the guys, with the players, with the coaches, they work so hard. DeMarcus, obviously, as a coach, players, all they think about is winning. So, of course, we won't make it up to B2 in the first season. But just like the examples I gave you about Shizuoka and Iwate, our team president the other day raised an interesting point. It's like, not that the Tokushima fan base is still unfamiliar with basketball, but you know, they're still new to the sport, right? So when they look at the newspaper or when they look online and they look at the standing, they're happy to see a winning record. Um, but what if that were, you know, if, if we were 10 and seven, they might be like, oh, they're still good, you know? But if we were three and 14, they'd be like, oh, what happened, you know? So that's a thing too. Like we have to think about, do we want to be a good team in a lower level or do we want to be, uh, or or sustainable team in the higher levels too. But like, what if we move up too fast and then suddenly we're like a bottom team in a higher category? And, you know, I'm not saying like, you know, we'll do our best and not let that happen. Um, but those are all possibilities too. So especially when we're working with a young up and coming fan base, you know, because they're new to the sport, um, you know, we have to think about those aspects as well. Um, but again, you know, this year, we're trying to make the playoffs. We're trying to be in the top eight position ourselves so that, you know, we could kind of move up as high as we can. Yep. I love it. And it comes back full circle to that word sustainability. Amazing. Well, yep. you guys have, uh, you guys have crushed it so far. I can't wait to get back out there to catch another game. Um, as yeah. we wrap up here, one, one question that, uh, yep. that I'd like to ask my guests, maybe just to give some advice to some of the younger listeners. Um, Cause we do call mm -hmm. this sports business secrets. So uh, yes. maybe specifically you can talk about, because I'm sure you can give a lot of advice from all the different experiences you've had, but maybe if there's some local uh -huh. um, Japanese kids listening, um, you know, young boys or girls that want to be a okay. future GM like you now, like what's some advice you have for them, like where yes. they can, where they can get involved or how they can learn more. 
Well, uh, that's kind of a loaded question in Japan only because, and again, I don't want to delve too deeply into this because in Japan, it's a tricky subject.、Um, but because of the educational system in Japan,、uh, kids that like go to like, you know, move up to like secondary education, go, go to university, get a good degree, get a good job, whatever, right?、Uh, a lot of times in Japan, this is kind of the unfortunate thing.、Um, to me, what I love about basketball players is that all they want to do is play basketball. So、uh, their goal is clear, right? Uh, but in Japan, a lot of times the non athletes,、uh, so the young professionals, they're not thinking about like, what do I want to become? But they think about what company do I want to work for? And,、mm-hmm. and I have a huge problem with that. You know,、mm-hmm. like that's not chasing your dream. That's like chasing a standard of life and quality of life. And that will come later, right? So I'd say, you know, you have to continue to chase what you love or what you enjoy doing.、Um, so, That would be my advice to like Japanese kids.、Um, my advice in general, just because of my experience, is that like when I, since I was a little kid, like I wanted to be like a play by play baseball announcer. You know, once I hung up my baseball player dreams, I wanted to be a member of the media, right? But I knew that it wasn't going to be a direct shot to become, you know, just hearing like about stories of other, say, announcers or reporters or, or even people in other careers. You know, what struck, what stuck to me more was not about like people just shooting their way up to whatever position they wanted to become, but it's always there's going to be like you're going to do other things along the way. And, and it's not like you're losing sight at that point. It's just that's where life takes you, right?、Mm-hmm. So just to kind of enjoy all those stops. And then if it's meant to be, like you're going to end up being near or around that position anyway. That's the way I see it. So, Actually, I never set out to be a GM, so I can't exactly give advice on how to become a GM. But I did set out to become, like I said, a play by play announcer in a very, very roundabout way. You know, I went from being like behind the scenes to acting to like doing stand up comedy and then next reporting. And then somehow I didn't even like apply for the job, but it's like, hey, do you want to do play by play for Japanese baseball? I'm like, absolutely. So, and then NFL, you know, I called the Super Bowl in Japanese. So, Um, it kind of like,、um, I'm not even about to say, like, don't try too hard. Just like enjoy like every stop, you know, enjoy all those moments. And so, because that way you can soak up every experience. And then by the time that those opportunities come around, you'll be more ready because the resume will be better. And also because you'll just be ready because of all those, those experiences from past stops. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, The last official thing I have for you is called the Sports、uh-huh. Business Lightning Round.、Um, I didn't prep you、yeah. for this, so I have a bunch of questions、Ooh. I got to throw at you, and you just got to hit、okay. me with the first thing that comes to your mind. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite color?、Uh, blue. Do you prefer coffee or tea?、Uh, ooh, coffee. Pizza. I like both. Okay. Pizza、yeah. or pasta? Pizza. Would you rather be able to speak to all animals or speak four languages fluently? Oh, well, I'd like to be able to speak to dogs, but I think I'll go with animals. Nice. What's your、yeah. favorite country outside the one you're in right now?、Um, well, it's kind of my home country, country as well, but would it be cheating if I say Canada? But I'm also、no. a Canadian citizen. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. I just I love Canada, even though it's cold. For sure. Not, not a big fan、yeah. of cold over here. What is,、yeah. uh, what's one of your biggest strengths? Uh, ooh. Uh, 
Wow. I think I'm like forever kind of like humble, but that's weird for me to say that. Like, isn't that weird for someone to say that I'm a really <laughs> humble guy? Um, no, but I actually, agree. what it is is like, um, I'm, I, I second guess myself a lot. So I'm trying to put a positive spin on that, which is being humble. There you go. Who is one of the first people to really believe in you? Hmm. Well, my mom. Yeah. What is one of your biggest fears? Oh, man. Not just one, but like probably the one is snakes. I've gotten that answer a few times. Uh, yeah. A couple more here. If you could have dinner yes. and drinks with anyone in the world and they're dead or alive, uh, who's one of the first people that comes to mind? Uh, probably uh, Barack Obama. Great one. Yeah. And last one, if you could turn back time and talk to 18-year-old Zach, what would you tell him? Oh, okay. Um, just, you know, just be patient, really. Um, yeah, just be patient. That's and, great but, advice. You know, and then patience is good, but then before you know it, you realize, and then like, hey, like things are going well, but it's like, wow, I'm really old, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> like um, I said, coming full circle, wise, very wise. Yes, yes. For sure. So I wonder like those rapid fire questions, like um, it's almost like a psychological, like psychology survey, right? Like yep. you could probably like guess, you know, like the real, the real Zach or, um, you know, what kind of person is he really, you know? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, you, yeah. you, you passed the sports business lighting around with flying colors. You think, <laughs> okay. um, thanks okay. again for coming Thank on, you. man. This was, this was awesome. Sure. I, know, I mean, I have, a, I have front and back of pages full of notes. I know the audience is going to get a lot out of this. So, um, cool. Cool. Arigato gozaimasu, and we will see yeah, you soon. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see you here. Um, you know, hopefully the Gombros are still, uh, riding high when you get here. I love it. They will be. Thanks again for listening, my friends. If you enjoyed the episode or if it brought you any value at all, it would mean the world to me if you could give it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. If you share it on social media, make sure you tag me at Kevin Tarka. If there are any topics that you want me to dive into or any guests you'd love for me to have on the show, just shoot me a message and I will do my best to make it happen. Have an amazing day and hope to see you back here soon.